I want to preach to you this morning a sermon thought that came to me towards the end of the week out of the book of Acts. Uh, chapter 27 in Acts is a full story. There's actually 44 verses. Rather than having you read all 44 verses, I will select just a few. Uh, but I will ask that you go ahead and stand this morning in the honor of the reading of the Word of God. We'll start in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. Verse 7. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lasea. Look at verse 14. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euryclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Verse 20. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God, that it will be just as was told me. Now look at verse 44. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And it was that they all escaped safely to the land. Let us pray. Lord, we love You this morning. Grateful for Your presence in this place. God, we're grateful that we serve the one true living God. Lord, that You are here in our midst, working on our hearts. Lord, we ask this morning that above all things that You would be lifted up. That we would have a clearer picture of who You are and who we are in You. We pray, God, this morning Your people's hearts would be encouraged. Lord, we pray that we would have some direction as a church. Where do we go in the midst of life's storms? Lord, we pray for the sinner this morning that the sinner would be saved. God, that You would remove the veil from the heart. And God, that this morning, that man or that woman who has yet to know You in the free pardon of sin would come and find grace at the feet of the Savior. 
Have your way, we ask it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to preach to you a sermon thought this morning out of verse 14. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurycliton. I want to preach this morning on the thought, surviving the storm called Eurycliton. This particular storm in Acts chapter 27 happens to be the worst storm recorded in the New Testament. We see a lot of terrible storms. We see the storms that Jesus' disciples were in, and then Jesus walked out on the water. We see the storm that Jesus was with His disciples in the boat, and they were afraid that they were going to die. We do see a terrible storm in the Old Testament with the life of Jonah. If you remember that story, those men were also throwing over the cargo because they were afraid that the boat was going to sink as it was taking on water. But even the storm in the story of Jonah was a storm that didn't last very long. It's possible the storm was only a matter of hours. In our text, if you look, and I'm going to ask the people that are running Scriptures, no more Scriptures up today because I'm only going to be paraphrasing part of them and it will be confusing. But if you'll look at verse 33, it says, Today is the fourteenth day, and you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. This is a storm so far that has lasted 14 days. It's a violent storm. Last night I tried to do some studying to understand what was the Euryclidon. While there are a handful of different views, everybody agrees it is a terrible storm that happens on the Mediterranean Sea. If your Bible is a different version, it probably called it the Northeaster. That Northeaster describes the, the direction of the wind of the storm. The word Euroclidon is actually two words put together, and that last word, Clidon, is a word that we get our word cyclone from. I looked at a couple pictures of this particular storm, and it looks very similar to a hurricane. It is a storm that feeds itself so long as it's on the sea. It is a storm with multiple different wind directions because it's circling and in the middle it's continuing to feed itself. It is a powerful and extremely violent storm. If you read all of Acts chapter 27, you find out that these men had taken a handful of prisoners, Paul was one of them, to transport them to a different location. And in the process of getting to where they had intended, intended to go, this storm arose. The Bible tells us that the storm was so violent that they could not continue in the direction that they were going. One of the commentators that I read when I was studying this storm said that not only is it a violent wind, not only does it have hurricane-type forces, but it is where two currents actually collide. And so the boat was hopelessly out of control. Not only was the wind contrary to where it was trying to go, but so too were the currents. And that's why we read in verse 15, So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Sometimes we face storms that push us off course. 
This is that type of storm that you might call the perfect storm. The waves and the winds working together and the ship could do nothing but eventually stop trying to fight it because it knew if it was going to continue to fight it, it would eventually crash. And the only possibility of survival was to let down the sails and let this storm take it where it was going to go and hope that somehow on the other end of this storm they would end up alive. Some of you might be in a storm like that this morning. It came on suddenly. It came on violently. It's not really that you did anything wrong or anybody else did anything wrong. It's just that all of the sudden there was a perfect storm and the winds and the waves were contrary to where you had intended to go. You had mapped out a course for your life. You had mapped out this this vision in your mind of, of where you were heading and all of the sudden something happened and the perfect storm came and you had no option but to let down the sails and let the winds and the waves take you where they were going to take you. Sometimes that's like life. This morning I want to preach to you about your life, but I also want to preach about the church. The church is caught in a perfect storm. Our culture is at a crossroads. The church has been faced with winds and with waves that are trying to take it somewhere it was never intended to go. And unfortunately, the leadership of our church has become so weak and anemic that the pastors that fill our pulpits, the evangelists that travel this country, the people that draw crowds have lost sight of how to move God's church to where God intended it to be. We've been caught up in the crossroads of a culture that is entertaining. And the church feels it has to out-entertain Hollywood. That it's got to be more exciting than the NFL. That somehow, some way, the only way we can grow and the only way we can move forward and the only way we can do anything for the cause of Christ is to become more entertaining. We've been caught up in the winds and in the waves of all-inclusiveness. The idea that if you preach that sin is sin, that somehow you're being exclusive and somehow you're not being loving. And therefore, we must find supposedly some way to communicate the Gospel without calling sin, sin. Without telling people to repent. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't work that way. We must preach the Word of God regardless of where it leads us. Regardless of what the crowd saying, Regardless of what Hollywood says. Regardless of what the news media says. We must preach the truth and stand fast on the truth and not be moved aside by this storm that is blind side of the church, which has said, if you want to be loving, and if you want to preach Christ, then you cannot preach against sin. The church has been caught up in a storm and we're fading in the wrong direction. A devilish competition with one another. We're all so concerned about losing members to the church down the street that we can't come together anymore. We want to have great revivals and great meetings. We just don't want anyone else to come or we don't want to go to anyone else's meetings. The modern church is advertising in some way trying to convince you why they're better than the next church to the left or to the right. And this perfect storm is just 
festered and all of a sudden it's hit the American church by surprise. And we seem to have no response. We, many of us don't even realize that the church is going in the wrong way. We've been deceived into thinking that the goal is to be liked rather than to be liked. We have defined success and being liked by the world and somehow bought into this lie that whichever church and whichever, whichever pastor is most accepted by the community is he that is doing the work of God because Jesus was loving and people loved Jesus. Have you read the Bible? You're right that Jesus was loving, but you're wrong that people love Jesus. In the beginning of His ministry, there were thousands, 12,000 at one time that were following. At the end, there was only 12. And on that last night, they deserted Him too. We are called to be liked, not liked. And the Bible says the darkness hated the light. Because the light exposed the deeds of darkness. And rather than wanting to repent and turn to the light, men loved their wicked deeds and held on to their wicked deeds. They hated the light. Where did we get this confusion in the church that somehow if we do it right, if we preach it straight, and if we love people the way that God loves people, that the world's going to like us and approve of our message? It's nowhere to be found. This is what happens with a group of people who have grown anemic to the Word, who have forgotten to read it for themselves and let the Word of God get deep into their own soul. We've been tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And what I see is that the church is in a perfect storm. We've been caught unprepared. It's not necessarily any one group's fault. It's not this church or that church or this denomination or that denomination. We need to not be pointing fingers as a body of Christ. But we must realize we have lost sight of our mission. Simply to preach Christ and Him crucified. Why must Christ be crucified? Because we were sinners. Because there must be a penalty for sin. This storm is the type of storm as we read in verse 20 that all hope had been lost. Can I tell you that's what the devil wants to bring us to? He wants to bring us to a place where all hope is lost. For some of you in your own individual lives, the storm wants to take you to the place where you just give up and decide it's too late for me. It's too late for my life. There's too much that's been messed up. It can never be right again. I'm too far away from the destination. This storm has driven me further and further away from where I thought God wanted me to be. And hopelessness begins to sink in. Listen to the preacher this morning. Don't give up hope. It is never too late when Christ is on the boat, when you're on the ship that you're supposed to be on. It is never too late for God to step in and work a miracle in your life. And as far as the church is concerned, 
As we look at the state of the church, as I look at the infighting in the church, I read a terrible article this week. An article about Tim Tebow and Louis Giglio, both of who are good men of God. Tim Tebow was going to speak at uh, a, a large church in Texas, a good, solid, Bible-believing church. And their pastor, Robert Jeffries, who's a great pastor, one of whom we need more men like him to, to rise up in our country and speak the truth, regardless of if it's popular or not. A pastor who's not afraid to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. A pastor who's not afraid to say that sin is sin including homosexuality. Our brother Tim Tebow was supposed to be speaking there and his publicist and a a handful of people found out about it and contacted his publicist and said this will be the end of Tim Tebow. If he associates himself with a person that says that homosexuality is sin, and that was the issue in the article, His career is done. He's over with. Tim Tebow went through his speaking opportunity to speak to thousands of God's people to encourage them based out of fear of what might happen to him if he did. Louis Giglio was in a very similar predicament and also had to withdraw a speaking engagement from another situation. All based out of fear of what will happen if they associate themselves with a strong Bible-believing church. And when I look at that, and I look at our culture as a whole, this overwhelming feeling of there's nothing that can be done starts to sink in. We see ourselves in a storm called Euryclida. Where it seems like no matter how hard you try to face the winds, no matter how hard you try to keep going in the right direction, the, 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 the torrent is too fierce. Everything is going the wrong way and we have no option but to just let the thing right itself out. This is a storm that would have taken everybody's lives. But I read to you in the very last verse that somehow, some way, all escaped safely. So I want to ask the question this morning. Here's what I want to preach on. How did these men escape? How are you going to make it through the storm in your life called your Eclidon? How is the church somehow going to weather this torrent that has come against us? The winds that are contrary. What must we do if we are going to survive and come out on the other side of this thing alive and well and stronger than we were before we ever entered it? First of all, I want to say there was one man on board. Oh, that God would raise this up in the heart of His church. There was just one man on board. His name was Paul. Had Paul not been on board, the whole thing would have went down and every passenger on board would have died. What are you trying to say this morning, preacher? What I'm trying to say is it doesn't take a lot. If you look from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, God has did amazing things through a small handful of people. Sometimes it was just one man who was willing to say, as the Apostle did in our text, 
I believe God and I'm going to be faithful to God. It doesn't matter if the whole world is contrary to you. It doesn't matter if the whole world has another message than the message that God has delivered to you. You and God is enough and we must be faithful to Him and trust Him that, Lord, as we stand for You and we are remain in our integrity and we do what You've called us to do, then somehow, some way, we're going to make it through this thing. And when it's all said and done, we answer to Him anyways and no one else. It's time that we quit worrying about who we answer to now. Because quite frankly, we answer to God now anyways. Now we're going to stand before Him face to face and there will be a day of reckoning. There will be a judgment day. But His opinion is the only one that matters. And if the whole world disagrees with Him, the whole world is wrong and God is right. And I am not ashamed to say so. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God under the salvation of men. If the message that we're preaching is not accompanied by the power of God and the salvation of men, then it's not the Gospel at all that we preach. It's not about being entertaining. It's not about being the next biggest thing. It's not about being liked. It's about being liked. If you're saved here this morning, if you're truly saved, you know there came a moment in your life when the light exposed your darkness and it didn't feel good. You wanted to run and hide too. But you realized God was willing to save you as you were. That same blessed reality that people are sinners and that Jesus is the Savior is the only thing that will lead people to Christ. It's the only thing that will bring people into a saving knowledge and into a relationship with God. The reality that they are sinners. The good news is not really good news if there is no such thing as sin. How is it good news that Jesus had to die on a cross? And I want you to see this. I've been doing some studies lately about the cross. And one of the things that, one of the statistics I found was overwhelming. The number of churches and the number of pastors and the number of sermons that the cross and what took place on Calvary is completely left out of is overwhelming in our society. Never before, like in any period of time in the church, has the cross been left out like it's been left out now. It started back in Billy Graham's day. Somebody came to Billy Graham, a publicist that that understood people and crowds, and said, listen, if you really want to be big, Billy Graham, if you really want to make it large, you're going to have to quit preaching on the blood so much. Because the blood is offensive to people. Billy Graham said that he purposed from that day in his heart to preach more on the blood than he'd ever preached before. And you look what happened to his ministry. Because we serve a God that has the ability to lift up His people if His people will lift up Him. Why are the churches leaving out the cross? Here's the answer. It doesn't make sense if there's really no such thing as sin. If you're great people and you're good people and you're not really sinners, it's just that you're kind of messed up because everyone else around you made it, you'd be messed up. It's their fault, not yours. 
And God just wants to come in and make your life even happier and make you even richer and make you even more better than all of your friends and more successful than all your business partners and and the greatest thing on earth. Then why did Jesus die? And we leave apart the fact that we're sinners in need of a Savior. Hopelessly doomed, if not for God. You can't pay for your sins. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, and you realize that you're a sinner, you could make the decision, let's just theoretically say, that you could make the decision you'll never sin again. And that you're going to do all the good that you can. That you're going to be as great of a person as you possibly can. That you're going to help everybody you can help. That you're going to love everybody you can love. That you're just going to forgive everybody that's ever did you wrong. That you're going to go to church every service as possible. That you're going to pay your tithes as you can pay your tithes. That you're going to help missions. You're going to do all these great things. You're still guilty as a sinner and you're going to go to hell. Think about the man who murdered the lady next door. And as he stands before the judge, the judge says, Sir, are you guilty of murder? His response is, Yes, sir, I am. I murdered that woman in cold blood. But, hold on a second, judge. Before you make any judgment about what I did, listen, I did a lot of good things too. Matter of fact, I helped my other neighbor. I've got friends that I helped do this and that. And, 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 and most of my life I've did some good things here and good things there. And you really need to take all that into consideration before you accuse me guilty of murder. Hey, if that judge is a just judge, he'll say that doesn't matter one lick. You are guilty of murder. So it is with our sins. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, all of us need a Savior. This is why Jesus came. This is why He had to die. So that He could take the penalty for all of our sins and put Him on His own shoulder and pay it on our behalf so that we could come to God and say, God, I accept the price that was paid on my behalf by Your Son on Calvary's cross. Please forgive me. And God could, as a just judge, say Your penalty has been paid in full. You may go free. This is the message of the church. This is the message of the Gospel. Now I ask the question, I'll be quick. How did these people make it out alive? Four things I want to share this morning. Besides the fact there was one man on board. Our situation is not hopeless. And the first thing I want to talk about is hope. We see that in verse 20 through 22, that is, neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days, that all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But Paul stood up and said, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. If we're going to weather the storms of life, the storm of Eurycleid, and if the church of the living God is going to come out on the other side of this thing alive and vibrant. The first thing that we've got to do is get our hope straight. I want to preach briefly on hope, but before I do, I want to define it. There's a big difference between hope and wishing. A great big difference. Most of the time when we say, well, I hope, 
What we mean is, I wish. I'm like 50% sure it might happen, 50% sure it might not. I don't really know. I hope that it does. That's not what the word hope even means. And in the Bible, this is real important. You understand that in the Bible, the, hope, the word hope is never used in that context. Hope deals with the reality of what is to come. It is a fact. Some of you have heard me make this analogy before that you might hope that the Chiefs are over 500 next year. That's wishful thinking. That's not hope. But if you have worked 40 hours this week, and you put in your time at your place of employment, you have hope of a paycheck to come. You're not wishing. You're not crossing your fingers that thing comes next week on Friday or whenever your payday is. You know it's yours. You just don't have it yet. See, that's a picture of what hope is. We know what is ahead. It's guaranteed. There's no question. We're not wondering if it's going to happen. It is settled, set in stone. It is a fact. We just don't have it yet. That's what hope is. And we as a church, you as an individual, we must have our hope placed in the correct thing. We see this constant theme throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was constantly alluding to the hope that is set before us. To the reality that our hope is not in this world. That our hope is not in the things of this world. But our ultimate hope is in the reality. The fact that one day the Lord Jesus Christ will return and the dead in Christ will rise. And then those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in heaven. And forevermore we will be with the Lord where there will be no sickness, no pain, and no death. That is the hope of the church of the living God. And we must keep our eyes on the hope that lies before us. What if we look around the things which... This current, this tidal wave that has come against the church has taught us to look at. And that is the temporary. God wants to make you rich, fat, and famous. Somehow that's success. That you have more than you know what to do with. More than you know how to spend. What did Paul say in... 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. He said this. He said, if we only have hope in this world, we are of most miserable people. Think about that statement. Boy, the Word of God is so true. If we only have hope in this world, we are of most miserable people. Well, that's the truth. It explains, first of all, why the world around us is so miserable. Everybody knows how to put on the right clothes, how to dress the right way, look the right way when they're in public, when they're at their place of employment, but the world around us is hurting, empty, because they have discovered, even the wealthiest amongst us have discovered just as Solomon said, it's all vanity. It's all nothing. Solomon said, what good does it do to accumulate great wealth? You die and someone else takes it. 
You can't take it with you. You see, life is meaningless outside of Christ. And life is purposeless if we have no hope other than in this world. We are the most miserable people. So Paul said, it also explains why there's so much hopelessness and miserableness in the church. In the church. Because the church has taken our focus off of the hope that we should have. We've taken our eyes off of Christ. We've taken our, our heart from seeking God. And all that we care about is God's hands. Give me, give me, give me, give me. And we want God to build our earthly kingdom rather than investing our lives into building His heavenly kingdom. And we've got our focus on this world. Listen, when you focus on this world, you'll be of most miserable people. Sin might be fun for a season. That's what the Bible says. The seasons come to an end. What about the hope of the Christian? In Hebrews 16, it says, We might have strong, 6 verse 18, says we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Listen to this beautiful statement from the Word of God. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. Oh, when the soul is torn asunder, when it wants to go this way and that way, brothers and sisters, if we can keep our eyes on the fact of what lies ahead of us, on the fact that our God sees everything that we do. He hears every idle word. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. We can rest, we can rest assured that there will come a day when God will reward the faithful. And when it does, it will all come to pass. And we will see it mattered more than we knew to be faithful to God, to stand in our integrity, and to be the people He called us to be. We have a sure hope. It's an anchor for the soul. And when your soul is anchored anywhere other than in Christ, you'll be tossed to and fro. You'll be following every wind of doctrine. You'll be looking for peace and joy and, and whatever the, the flavor of the season is in society this year and then in the year to come and in the year after that. If you're going to make it through the storms of life, if the church is going to come out of this tidal wave that's taking us off course, we must get our hope straight. The second thing we must do is prayer. We must understand the power of prayer. Look at verse 29. It says, They dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Your prayer life or your lack thereof will tell you how much you really depend on God and how much you think you need. Prayer is the thing that takes us from the presence of our troubles into the presence of God's throne. Hebrews 4 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace 
that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need, in your time of need, in the church's time of need. It is prayer that will take you from that need immediately into the presence of God as you kneel before Him at His throne and He can answer your prayers and meet your need in that hour. Prayer is our weakness reaching out and taking hold of God's strength. Prayer gives us the inner strength to meet the outer strains of life. Prayer will give us calm in the midst of chaos. And it is the simplicity of prayer that is the answer to the complexity of life. Prayer must be the air that we breathe. It must be a life that we live, not just something we do occasionally. It's, Paul said to pray without ceasing. That means not only in the time when you get away in your prayer closet and you're spending intimate time with God, but to live that life where you're in realization God is here now. I am in communion with Him at this moment. That I can pray and enter His presence, that throne room of grace, immediately, boldly, at any time. Prayer will change your attitude towards your own problems. The problem with the church is that prayer is seen as a last resort rather than a way. I don't even want to call it the first resort. It should be a way before the first resort. It should simply be a way of life. Often when we face trials and troubles, our first instinct and this is what, another reason the church is going in the wrong direction. Our first instinct is to uh, contact the professionals. Go to the counselor. Call your best friend. Call the pastor. We have forgotten how to be alone with God and seek God first. We have forgotten that the first century church, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have emails. They didn't even have a mail system. Everybody had to learn how to seek God on their own. When grandma was sick, they couldn't just run across the, the county to find the Apostle Paul. They had to learn that they, by themselves, right there, in that moment, could go boldly to the throne of grace and find that same power that the Apostle Paul could find. Oh, the church must learn again how to pray. Prayer reaches heaven. If we would just pray fervently, continually, regularly, many of the problems that seem to turn our life into chaos would just fade into oblivion and they would seem to mean nothing. There have been times in my life where I have been made aware of real problems. Sometimes problems within the church. Sometimes problems that the average person, if they heard, would just fall to pieces. Problems so much bigger than anything I could figure out on my own. Problems so much greater than my ability to come up with a solution to. The natural instinct of my flesh is the same instinct of your flesh, and that's to panic, to grow fearful, to try to figure out a solution. But I have learned the discipline of prayer that I'm preaching to you about 
And I can't explain it other than to say it's supernatural when you enter into the presence of God through the power of prayer. And you allow God to speak to you in that place too. It doesn't take long for me to get away and say, God, uh, you, you know the situation even better than I do. And, and you know everything there is to know about it. And you know how difficult it is. And, and I don't know what to do. And Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for You for wisdom and guidance. And I'm praying about this thing. And asking that You would have Your way in this situation. Often it's only a matter of moments before the peace comes. And in the still small voice of God deep inside of my soul, I'm just reminded He's in control. I'm reminded that He wasn't surprised by this. Matter of fact, He knew about it the whole entire time. I'm reminded that He can take all things and work them out for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. I'm reminded that Philippians 1.6 tells us that He that began a good work will finish it and accomplish it. I'm reminded that Jesus told His disciples in all of the law, It's kept in this simple phrase, love God and love people. And all of a sudden, peace comes. And I realize it's going to be okay. Prayer will bring calm in the midst of chaos. May it become the first thing that we do. A way of life. I don't know exactly concerning the church, which I've preached a little bit about this morning. I don't know exactly how to get it where it needs to go, but I know this, God does. And I'm willing to be that one man on board. Amen? Are you willing to be that one man on board that says, God, I don't understand it, but I'm going to pray, and I'm just going to throw out the anchor, and I'm going to pray until day comes. Because prayer changes things. We also see faith. In verse 25, he said simply, I believe God. That is the simplest three-letter, three-word sentence to describe faith. I believe God. I'm going to paraphrase all of chapter 27. Paul said, though we haven't eaten in 14 days, though this storm is continuing to drive us, though it has been so terrible, it says they didn't see the sun or the stars. They couldn't tell if it was day or night. That is a dark and, and, and terrible storm. You ever been at that place in your life where it was just dark? There was no day. There was no night. It was just continual darkness and pain. Paul said, though this has happened, though we've been in this storm for 14 days, though we're all hungry, though we don't know where we're at, though this wasn't part of the plan, God has said, and I believe God. Oh, may that be enough. I pray that sinks into your heart this morning, child of God. God's Word is enough. He has said it. That settles it. It's done. But God has spoken. He will accomplish. Our hope is sure. It is a steadfast anchor to the soul. Why? Because God will do what God has said. May we pray and cry out as the man did. Lord, we do believe. Help us with our unbelief. Help us to simply believe You. Help us to know that You are with us at all times because You said so. Help us to believe that You turn all things into the good of those who do love You and are called according to Your purpose. We've got to have faith. 
Prayer and faith go hand in hand. Prayer without faith is a fire that won't burn. We need faith. If you don't believe God's actually hearing you, your prayer won't do much. Jesus said, pray believing that God has heard and that God will. Prayer without faith is water that won't satisfy. Prayer is praying for rain. Faith is grabbing the umbrella when you walk out the door. Prayer and faith together will turn a mess into a message. The world says that believing, that seeing is believing. Faith says believing is seeing. I'll see it when I believe it. Might God increase our faith? In Romans 4.3 it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him for righteousness. Righteousness. That's right standing before God. Lord, I believe You. Abraham did not slay giants as David did, nor did he write any proverbs as did Solomon. Abraham believed God. He did not confront Pharaoh. He did not lead the people through the Red Sea. He did not give the law as did Moses. All the Bible says that Abraham believed God. He was not a learned scribe as was Ezra. He was not a great builder as was Nehemiah. Abraham simply believed God. He did not have strength like Samson. Nor did he command the sun to stand still like Joshua did. The Bible simply says Abraham believed God. He did not face the lions like Daniel. He did not face the fires of Nebuchadnezzar's flames like the three Hebrew children. Abraham believed God. He did not call fire down from heaven like Elijah. He did not have the visions like Ezekiel or any of the other great prophets. He simply believed God. And as a result, He became the Father of all those who through faith will put their faith in Jesus Christ. I believe God. It's got to be enough. Oh, there has to come a time in your life, child of God, when you simply say, it doesn't matter if the storm's been raging for 14 days. It doesn't matter if my world is dark and black. God is good. God is here. God is able. And God's going to lead me out of this thing. I believe God regardless of what the whole world says around me. He is God. He is true. And there is none other but Him. And that is enough for me. We must have faith to believe that our God is who God says that He is. We've got to have hope. We've got to have prayer. We've got to have faith. And finally, we have to have praise. Verse 35, they've not been let off the boat yet. It's still the 14th day. The Bible says that Paul took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. This is not the first time that we've seen Paul praise God in incredibly difficult situations. You might remember Acts chapter 16 and verse 25, which tells us that at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang hymns to God. 
as they were captives in prison, shackled to the prison wall. Can I say that when we really, truly get our eyes on Jesus, it's easy to praise Him. When we get our eyes off of everything else, it becomes on everything else, it becomes difficult. When our peace and our joy is tied to our circumstances around us and not the fact that God is who He said He is and I am who God says I am. It becomes difficult to praise God. But Paul was a man who kept his hope right. He kept his prayer life right. He kept his faith right. And because of that, no matter what situation he was facing, he could continue to praise God. There's something powerful in the life of the church when we learn to praise God at all times. He's worthy at all times. Therefore, His praise should be in our lips at all times. Praise will do something in your soul when you do it from your soul. And you, your world might be rocking around you. The storm might be raging. But when you get alone and you begin to speak out, God, I love you and you are good and you are true and you are faithful and you loved me when I wasn't worth loving and you begin to praise God, all of a sudden you're reminded of who He is and how good He is and the sun starts to shine a little bit and the clouds start to break a little bit as you're reminded that your God is in control. May the praise of God's people not be stolen away from God. There's something powerful about praise, and I can't... I'll go ahead and ask our worship team to come. I want to say these final things about praise. There's something powerful about praise. In the Old Testament, there was a time when God's people had been destroyed. They had been taken into Babylonian captivity. Many of those who had fought in war, the Babylonians took their carcasses, their dead carcasses, and they lined the streets with their carcasses. Dead bodies to the right, dead bodies to the left. And then they took all of the captives and marched them through the street with the dead bodies of their fathers to the left and to the right. Why? To make sure that there wasn't a word of praise that came out of their mouth. Because the enemy had learned throughout the Old Testament as you read. You look at Gideon. They didn't have to fight a battle. All they did was make racket noise to the Lord. And God fought the battle for them. You look at Joshua. As they came against the walls of Jericho, what did they do? Seven times they marched around the the city. And then they blew trumpets. And as the trumpets sounded, the walls came down. You look at Second Chronicles chapter 20. They were surrounded by the enemy. And that God said, just praise me. You're not going to have to fight. You're not going to have to lift a hand. All you've got to do is praise me. And as the people of God begin to praise God, God Himself went forth and fought their battles for them. There's something powerful about praise. Talking about the title wins. Praise has been stripped away from the church too. We have mistaken emotionalism for real praise. We have mistaken the loud and powerful concert for praise from the heart. 
The day is coming and now is, Jesus said, when the true worshipers will worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's how you make it through the lot, the storms of life. You've got to have hope, prayer, faith, and praise. It really is that simple. I've lived it. I can tell you it works. The Word of God is faithful and true. As a church, part of the church of the living God, the true redeemed. Yes, we're caught up in a, a, a modern day culture that's fascinated with entertainment and, and we're trying to be relevant. We're trying to be the next big thing. And we've got to stop all that. We've got to sound the alarm and be reminded that God's ways that have been established from the foundations of time, they have not changed. God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. We simply need to keep our hope straight. We need to pray and ask God to do it only He can, acknowledging our weaknesses. We need to have faith and believe God. And consequently, we therefore need to be a people of praise. Praise is going to be the greatest duty of the redeemed. It is going to be the supreme function of the church for all eternity. Let that sink in for a moment. In heaven, there's so much that we do, but our supreme responsibility is the eternal praise of God. We ought to be praising Him now. With our life, in the marketplace, everywhere we go and everything that we do. Father, I pray that You move all across this room in Jesus' name. God, I believe there may be some here that are in a storm, God, a storm that's raging in their life. God, let them see this morning You're the only way out. You're the only way. This morning, may they turn to You with hope, in prayer, and in faith. Lord, I pray for the church. God, that You would raise up men of God to lead Your people in this country. Lord, that this stupid fear of what people think and what the world thinks would fade into oblivion and we'd be overtaken with a great fear of You and You alone. God, may we never give, the, uh, give up an opportunity to stand for You because we're afraid of what people might think about it. Help us to weather the storms of life. Help us to come out on the other side of this thing stronger. Help us to be the Apostle Paul of our family. The one that's on the boat that says, I believe God. God, help us to be the Apostle Pauls of our culture. In Jesus' name, move all across this room. So you thought you had to keep this up. All the world. 